What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, I definitely did not just do the linguistic training exercises from Anchorman with my boy Graham for about three minutes before we started this. And Graham, maybe we just cut in that audio right here. Right here. Oh, <clears throat> I can feel I have like just enough phlegm where like it would make me want to cough. Figaro, Figaro, yo. Sally sold seashells by the seashore. <laughs> What's one of the other ones? Sally sold psychedelics by the seashells. <laughs> unique New York, unique New York, unique New York. <laughs> All right. All right, I'm ready. All right, well, that was embarrassing. Um, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's maybe we get to choose whether or not something is embarrassing. And whenever we say something else was, instead of saying I chose to be embarrassed, we're giving up our sovereignty and our power. But then maybe talking about sovereignty is actually a way that privileged people are able to feel okay about their privilege when they look at people who come from a lot harder circumstances and don't have the same nervous systems or the same opportunities to have the same type of educations. And really, it's a problem of the privilege of the spiritual community that I'm a part of. What? Where the fuck did that come from, Graham? Anyways, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. We're keeping all of that shit in. Uh, Today, we have on Ben Stewart. Um, one of the most dynamic artists that I've had on the podcast so far. This motherfucker sings. Uh, he rages against the machine and he makes documentaries. And he's actually the the director of the Awaken the Podcast. Or <laughs> We're not cutting it out. Keep going. All right. Uh, the Awake in the Darkness documentary featuring Aubrey Marcus. Uh, and I got to see the uh, early screening of this with both of them. And they fucking did a fantastic job. And I connected with Ben afterwards and we were like, uh, let's do a podcast. And I was like, yeah, let's do a podcast. And this podcast is the baby of that conversation. And Graham, why is that funny? Will you just let me talk to the people instead of just giggling at me trying to fucking just speak my truth? <laughs> Um, we have an epic conversation and there's a moment where I think he might talk for maybe 15 to 17 minutes uninterrupted. And it's honestly one of the best like linguistic jazz sessions that's ever happened on this podcast. There's been some fire episodes lately, like the one with Sarah, like (laughs) I was, and the one with just, it, it just, it keeps getting better and better. So. That was fire. Um, I think you guys will really enjoy this podcast. And for the next couple of weeks, uh, today is November 19th. For probably the next like three or four weeks, the documentary will be available to stream for Freezies. If you go to aubreymarcus.com backslash darkness, uh, it's good. And there's a part in the movie that only the people who see it are going to understand a inside joke that I will that I can't wait to do because it's like the climax of the movie, but it's fucking it's good if you don't have that's actually a hint. And when you go back after you've seen it, you'll maybe know what I'm talking about. Anyways, 
If you would like to support the podcast, you can sign up for my newsletter um, at arigati.com and share this podcast with someone that you think would enjoy it. Big love. Thank you for your time and for your attention and enjoy the podcast. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Um, I met you for the first time uh, probably about four or five months ago. You came into the office and uh, you were beginning to work with Aubrey on a darkness documentary, a documentary about when Aubrey did his six days in darkness. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get a chance to talk, but I could feel like your presence because you actually came in when me and some of the fit for service coaches were holding like a like a live Q and A, and it's interesting how without the exchange of any words, I could feel from you that you've been doing the work for a while, that you've explored psychedelics, and that you have meditation practice was my impression. Simply from how present I could feel you were tracking the things that we were saying. And so that was the start of our friendship, which was awesome. And the like first cycle of the, of the friendship story culminated a couple of days ago when I got to go sit in a movie theater and watch the film that you made that is a documentary of one of my closest friends. And it was fucking incredible. So... um I know that the background of the materials that you had for the podcast was, or for the documentary, was just hours and hours of um, intimate audio, and then a jubilee of a couple of video interviews. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this to you when we did a Q and A at that event, but that the fact that you were able to, without asking for new material, able to weed or weave a consistent single thread out of the <laughs> ball of yarn of 40 different threads that could have been woven. And then also how you were able to essentially like capture a climactic, a climactic moment in a way where I can feel it's about to become a meme in our community maybe until we die and I can't talk about it because it will give away the, it, but you know, the moment I'm talking about, and you do. know, the, and this will probably get into some of the stuff that we're going to talk about here. But one of the things that I could feel is I'm, I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but one of the things that I could feel at the Q and a that happened afterwards is that the essence of like a master creator is that no one in the crowd even had the presence of mind to ask you a direct question about how you did it because the way that it was like Graham has the same vibe too whereas like he's such a master at creating the container that people who don't have the eyes to see don't realize how masterfully the container was put together and then they only look at the object in the middle of the container and you know the object here would be Aubrey you know like he he was the one that was the one on screen mm -hmm. and i could feel at the same time that there was just this like complete peace in it too from you like there i'm going on tangents i had no idea i was about to go down i love it man tell me more <laughs> but 
there's a lot of um, peer creators that I know who their daemon is calling them to be that type of master, but their ego won't let them sit in the spot of the type of master who weaves it so well that to the people who don't have the eyes, they become translucent. Hmm. And I, I was just feeling like, um, and maybe it's because my disposition is like in, orga- in organizational structures, I tend to be really good as the one weaving the thing behind the thing. But it was like, you know, there's like a tripod of those type of men here right now. I was like, I fucking see you and I see you and I see you. And um, with all that, welcome to the podcast, Ben. You're super dope and I'm really happy that we've connected. Oh man, the long and the short, man. I, I love it, dude. <laughs> Yeah, brother. Um, I've appreciated your work for quite some time, so it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be on this podcast. And um, yeah, little do you know, I've I've learned quite a bit from you as well. So it was an honor. And you're right at the uh, at the premiere, um, you were the only one to to mention the filmmaking part of it, which made me feel accomplished because they just wanted to ask Aubrey, like, what was it like? And it was all these, you know, at a good enough director and writer should be able to make a film to where they disappear. It's just this film. And, you know, it shouldn't even feel like, wow, what a... I mean, I, I take this back. A lot of movies and stories, if it's really well done, the audience knows, like, that, that was just well done. But you give all the credit to the actors. You're just like, man, that was incredible. Because that's just how you see it ha- having happened. Yeah. For me... Um, the fact that you, you mentioned that I knew that you, you perceive on different levels and you see the process of creation. Um, but the fact that I could just sit up there with Aubrey and just kind of every now and then I would mention what it was like to go through four hours of Aubrey's <laughs> deepest, darkest thoughts. <laughs> um, I, I meant it when I said, I was like, when I first started listening to it, I was like, should I just grab a generic NDA from Google, sign it and just send it to him? And just be like, just so you feel safe. Yeah. <laughs> because he is, you know, even more open and honest with a tape recorder in the dark than he is, which is, is hard because he's very open and honest in the podcasts and in his public life. But um, it was beautiful. It was an honor. And um, yeah, man, I am I'm happy to be out here in Austin. Super cool. Drove in with my family from Nashville, Tennessee. And um, I'll be here all next week. And it just seems like my, my schedule got slam-packed after that premiere in a good yeah, way. 100%. Yeah. I can feel that another thread that's coming up is just like... <clears throat> One of the things that makes a leader like just effective and successful and leader feels like such a small word and successful feels like such the wrong word, but like for someone who can rally people around them to do something that those people without that person would be afraid to do, i.e. Aubrey, one of the things that he embodies that I just don't see from most people. And it's probably why he has the life that he has is as soon as he feels intuitively that someone is trustworthy, he just fucking sends it. Like y'all hadn't interacted that much. And he gave you some of the most personal pieces of recorded essence of his soul that exists in the world. And like, 
it's it's so interesting, and I'm going on so many threads. I haven't even got into the intro question, but this is what <laughs> it is. Like, uh, because of the I've, I've I've never talked about this on the podcast either, so this is going to be fun. Um, because of the position that I'm in, people feel almost like they're obligated to give me their advice and perspective on Aubrey. And there's a part of me that like, as I'm listening to their projections and their judgments, it's just kind of like, and I've talked with Graham about this. It's like the amount of in-person, like life affirming, like I can trust this person, this person's, heart and radar and soul is oriented properly. The amount of those, like in the heat of the fire moments I've witnessed besides Aubrey and what I've seen him do, like the people that are offering me their judgment of someone that they don't know Mm. in the context of like, I'm trying to find a way to word this where it's not shitty, (laughs) but like, um, the lack of obstacles that they have said yes to facing in their life to leverage a judgment against like the man in the arena. I actually think that that is exactly where the thread meets the fucking sewing machine is that, you know, it's that Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena. I wish I knew the whole thing off the top of my head, but it's like, it's like the function of the people. It's everyone is called to be in some arena like it might not be the same one, but I think everyone's soul, no matter who they are, there's somewhere where they were fully expressing themselves. It would feel like they were the human in the arena. And many people will live their lives and not claim that call because it's terrifying and it will demand everything from you. And it's like it's like the function of the people who have said no to their call to point the fingers and to do the judging of the men and the women who are in the arena. And it's to bring that tangent back so I can ask you the fucking introductory question is um, it was just really beautiful to feel first how quickly and how fully he trusted you and also to feel that you appreciated the weight of that trust and that that to me in the same way that like a gift of a creator is to be able to disappear and not be resentful almost of the disappearing that is almost a function of doing it beautifully Mm. there's a function of being a great leader where it's like as soon as you feel it's right to trust trust fully (laughs) so with all of that said (laughs) oh my god um to introduce you more to the audience um the question that i like to open with is if you had just finished doing something that put you in the flow. And then I met you for the first time and I asked you, who are you and what do you do? What would you say? And I want to offer this with the preface of, uh, I'm not asking the spiritual person who is like burning sage in the park that if I asked you, who are you? They would say, I'm consciousness and I'm just here to love. I don't think that's what you would say if I met you for the first time. And there's a couple of people that have answered this question like this. <laughs> this is for the people listening to really get to know you. Mm. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah. So um, Ben Stewart, you know, my, my website is Ben Joseph Stewart. So sometimes people just know me as that. But um, 
artist, you know, usually I don't mind adding that after I am, you know, uh, I get where people come from where it's like adding anything after I am is just limiting me, bro. <laughs> you know, step off my sage. I get it. Um, for me, I'm an artist. And um, the reason I say that is because every act of expression, which is even the moments where I'm not intending to, I'm just alive and I'm, I'm reacting to stress, whatever it might be. I see it as an act of creation that will ripple in ways that I could scarcely understand. And I see that as being an artist. And the more I understand these things, the more I even see the things that do frighten me and do scare me as uh, unlimited raw power to leverage, mm. you know? So like leveraging fear, leveraging the things that we think are obstacles, um, calling or finding those moments as a call to more deeply know ourselves. And then, and only once you say yes, even if you fall flat on your face, there will be a moment where you get to, you know, and, and I shouldn't say you, where, where I always seem to then acknowledge that the answer is there. Like, you know, you, you gave it, you gave it a go and you gave it a yes, not a no. Um, that's why I say I'm the artist. I can remember back to, um, real quick biography. No, I would, go for it. I was an army brat. I'm born in Tacoma, Washington within six months, Savannah, Georgia, um, um, Atlanta or Savannah, Georgia. Um, where in, in Atlanta or not Atlanta, that's Georgia, um, Alabama, Fort Rucker, Alabama, Florida, Connecticut, then the Marshall Islands out in Kwajalein, which is, um, you know, these tiny speckled islands between Indonesia and Hawaii, and then Hawaii, and then Massachusetts, then Pennsylvania. So all over. Wow. I got to see the South, wow. the North, the Northwest, the Northeast, Hawaii, Kwajalein. It was a crazy and wild ride. Um, but in that, I was uh, introduced to a lot of indigenous and uh, shamanic traditions. So at a very early age, I was obsessed with shamanism and blue whales. And it just like took me over. And I got into um, sports. I was really, really active, loved movement, loved um, competing in that way and, and calling myself to a higher standard around other people who are also trying to find that, you know, um, that competition that calls them forth. And then I, um, in the same day, I broke my ankle on a growth plate um, playing football on the same day that a good friend of mine got hit by a car and died. And that that shifted. I didn't even know why at the time. And I, I still, every time I think of my ankle and my posture and the asymmetry that it caused that I still work to overcome in, in nuanced ways, I think back to Ryan. Wow. And um, it's interesting how those things imprint themselves on you. So but that shifted me from a sports guy. I tried doing one more season of football and I was just done. I didn't have the passion, didn't have the drive. My brother just picked up guitar and I was like, I'm going to be a drummer. I'd played piano before, so I got into music. But my brother was in this band and he was really shy. You know, he such a good artist. He got me into filmmaking. He got me into music. He put the Tao Te Ching in my hand at wow. age 14. Holy this guy shit. set me off on all my trajectories. The biggest difference is, is, and I think this is part of his makeup, is he never went public with uh, a lot of his work. He did with some of it. Um, but I chronically said yes to everything. I tried to be a drummer in this band, wasn't good enough. So I was going to start a band where I was the drummer. And then the very first guy who was a good friend of mine, Adam, 
he was a better drummer than me. So I was like, all right, you're the drummer. I guess I'll play guitar. This other guy we brought in was a better guitarist. And I was like, I am not going to be a bassist. I'll sing. <laughs> so that was a band called Bad Fish. We were like Sublime, Chili Peppers, um, uh, Operation Ivy type music. Did that until I started realizing, Ben, what are you doing with your life? You're graduating high school. Are you going to be a musician, an artist? You have to keep making stuff that people like. And what if they don't? Then you'll live in a cardboard box because those are the only options, right? You either make millions or you live in a cardboard box. So I was like, I don't know if an artist is the way to go. And I overheard my dad, who was a Black Hawk pilot in the Army, saying that he knew this one civilian pilot who came from the Air Force and uh, he was making 150 a year flying twice a month. And to me, that's all he had to say. He didn't get into the details that this guy needed to put in 20 years before he got to that point. I was like, that's what I want to do. So I was like, Dad, I want to join the military. He was like, all right, we'll talk about it tonight. I was like, nah, I'll, I'll say no by tonight. We got we to gotta go and list me now. And he was like, Ben, I'm going to let you do this, but I'm going to tell you something. We stewards, we stay by our word. When we make a commitment, we do not back off of it. I'm not going to let you back off of this. And I was like, I understand. He was like, and don't go Army, go Air Force. And I was like, why? He was like, because you get treated better and it's the same pay. I remember being on base with Marines. They were in the most ship conditions. And Army, not that good conditions. Air Force, air-conditioned, awesome conditions. Everyone gets paid the same. Just do that. I was like, all right. So I did it, hated it from the start, then started understanding the camaraderie of the military. And this is leading somewhere. I, in the military, could not speak about politics or the state of the world or anything like that because even in your civilian clothes, you represent the military. And so I stood by that. In my band, as soon as I got back from uh, basic training or tech school, which was Shepherd Air Force Base up in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, there was the, you know, these people 20 minutes north of me looking to start a band. Uh, Incubus and Rage Against the Machine were the, the two bands that they um, uh, put on the flyer. Like they wanted to be like that. And I was like, all right. So I went and I tried out to be the singer. And um, there was another guy trying out to be a singer and it never got to him. And so he just stuck around. He ended up becoming the, the keyboardist. But we went to Lollapalooza within one year. Whoa. And that was nerve wracking. But chronically say, yes, Benjamin did it, you know? And I noticed that even in my prior band and that band, I didn't realize that I just had this thing about me where I was like, we can't say no to this opportunity. And years later, people in the band would say like, you know, you were the one who kind of gave me the balls to keep going with all this and see this as not just we're a garage band having fun, but this is actually, there's a career in this. And I didn't realize that about myself. I needed to hear it from other people. So. Long story short, I get out of the military in 2003, and I finally am able to start talking about the things I want to talk about. And um, at that point, I'm sorry, I got out of 2000, in 2006. Uh, I was 23. So I got out in 2006. By 2007, I was already working on a film. And this film... Little to, to my knowledge, people just said like, "Hey Ben, what are the what's the message of the lyrics? Because we know you're going balls deep, but what's it about?" And I said, "You know what? Instead of just telling you, let me do what an artist does. I'm going to make a short film for the band. It was going to be a 15 minute film about the band, turned into a two hour <laughs> six minute documentary having nothing to do with the band, going hardcore into conspiracy, but not 
by today's standards conspiracy, like what are the bloodlines? How was time distorted? How do franchises use colors when you're dining to either speed up your dining process or slow it down? How do news anchors use head tilts as ways to show you this is BS in my opinion? I went hog wild on all these things. And then at Um. the end, it was before YouTube, I was putting up 15 minute chunks on Google videos. And people were like, when are you going to put the final film out? And that that's when I started realizing like, oh man, when I put a pin on it, it's, it's like, it was at an hour and 45 minutes. I'm like, if I put a pin on it, then I'm a filmmaker. And then the film is going to be what it is. And then I'm just going to be a conspiracy theorist. And that nauseates me. I like using conspiracy as a way to antagonize further inquiry within ourselves. But then I had to land with a twist ending, which is all my favorite films or twist endings. So I was like, I have to remind people about human potential. So I just went hog wild at the very end about like, this isn't anything to be afraid of. I did that to get your attention. Let me tell you how this is all in your control and it's not something you need people or things out there to solve for you. It's actually a riddle you need to solve for yourself. And at the time, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't living these examples. I spoke well beyond my wisdom at the time, but it landed. And then people started buying the DVDs in droves. That People were buying hundreds at a time, thousands at a time, and just handing them out to their friends. So I was selling them to them for like two bucks a DVD and just getting massive amounts of DVDs. This is when people were buying DVDs, 2007, 2008. <laughs> and immediately they were like, Ben, you got to make a film, an entire film that's closer to that last 15 minutes where you're reminding people about their potential. So I did. I made a film called Chimatica. It won the 2009 um, uh, New York Independent Film Festival for Best Scientific Film. Mind you, a guy who I went to community college for half a semester, then I was pulled out for Operation Enduring Freedom in 2003. So I never went deep into institutionalized academia, but I was just going ham on my own research. Um, which was a good learning experience. So the thing I'm getting at was I was chronically saying yes. That led to people saying, come travel the world. We'll set up a world tour for you so you can do speaking. And I'm like, never done that before. Yes. You know what I mean? So was I nervous at any point? Actually, no, never. I barely ever had butterflies in my stomach. When I was 16 and I was getting up in front of 300 people for our very first show in the band Badfish, never had a butterfly in my stomach. I got up there and I commanded. And in fact, I felt more comfortable on stage than I did just hanging out with friends. Wow. There was something about it. And it just became this yes theory that I, I kind of stuck to. That was when something comes to you, an opportunity comes to you, that you know is on your path, then it's time. Even if you don't feel like you're ready, it's time. You know it's on your path. You know you've said yes to it in your dreams. Um, You got to say yes. And every single time, there is a bit of scariness to it. The most scared I ever got, actually one of the most nervous points I've ever gotten to was this past premiere. I was sitting in there, I was holding my wife's hand and I was thinking like, isn't this interesting? You know, like I I pour my heart and soul into bringing this story alive. And then the guy that I made the story about is sitting like three seats down from me. And everyone here knows that person and his story in some ways more than I do. And they're all sitting there thinking about how this film is landing. And I was just like, 
Whoa. Just make them cry or laugh. Just move them somehow. Like Whoa. you don't have to prove shit to them. You know, th- this Damn, film is going to speak for itself. I'm feeling into that for a moment. Wow. Yeah. It was Man, deep. to you're 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 fucking me up because my brain is trying to process what it would feel like. Like it's one thing to see anything that anyone's done that you know be presented on the size of a movie screen. Like it's it's interesting to feel into in your archetypical, like not arch, in your experience of the world. Mm. There is a specific part in the phenomenological house of your psyche that is for movies like there's a similar architecture that is the same almost all over the western world Mm. you sit and there's like a specific environment and your head is tilted at such a way and we see people like we see the human face at like 50 feet high Mm -hmm. and it's 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 a uniquely like ultra human experience like it's not anything you would ever experience in the ordinary evolutionary world ever so mm-hmm. it's, it's this very and then to have what is on the, in that archetypical part of the house of your psyche be like either your face you know like there's really only like 10,000 people in history that actually know you know it, it might be a little bit more than that but like a fraction of a fraction but to feel into I'm going into someone else's tribe, mm-hmm. highlighting their chief and having to sit in a dark room while <laughs> all of them like are tracking in their mind how they think the chief is responding. <laughs> like, that's mm-hmm. wild to feel into. And you crushed it. So aptly put. Um, yes, that's that's definitely what was going through my mind. And um the thing is, is uh, I knew what I was experiencing wasn't good or bad. It was just, well, this is the phenomena. Because to be perfectly honest, I'd never, I'd screened films before. Um, But the films that I made in the past were thought pieces on the world. Um, Even Psychedelica, that entire season, uh, and that's on Um, Gaia.com. We screened that at Alamo Draft House in Denver. And I sat on the Q and A's afterwards, and I sat there watching other people watch this, and you know they got to see Dennis McKenna, Stan Groff, Ralph Metzner, Rick Strassman, you name it. And to me, I just felt super confident about that. This was the first time where it was about exactly what you're saying. It was about somebody specific, and I was sitting in a room full of people that that just. <laughs> Understood the nuances. Yeah. But I knew the entire time, like, you know, I've been through these kinds of challenges um, in ways where I'm just like, you know, Ben, your heart is pounding. Smile. Right. How often do you get a chance to be scared out of your mind to know what other people are thinking because your art, your baby is up on the screen? And once it's up there, it's the audience's job to discern and judge. And, you know, it's, it's also... They could like the content, but you know, deep down inside, be like, "Yeah, it was it was good. It was mm. good. I love Aubrey." You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. Oh, I could feel it in your body how that would be a <laughs> soul destroyer. Yeah. And so the fact that people, um, 
the way the way that they spoke to it was exactly what I was going for with this film. And I'll just reiterate for those you know who are listening weren't at the uh, premiere because I mentioned it afterwards where I was like, this is not a film. We, we talk about some things that are cool. Like we have John Dean from DMT Quest talking about how the brain makes, you know, basically uh, opiates, cannabinoids, and psychedelics already in your brain. And then we have Jamie Wheel talking about the pineal gland and just how incredible of a gland that is and how um, darkness used to be a nightly thing. And nowadays there's always lights on and, and things along those lines. You know, so th there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And we talked about the Kogi who, you know, they would send their Jaguar priests into darkness from like birth to adulthood. So they don't see light until they're adults and they come out and there's this big adjustment period. So we talked about stuff like that, but the whole point was not to do what most documentaries do, which is prove to you a vision of the world or a version of the world. You know, through like, and we have the evidence to back that up. It wasn't about that. It was about Aubrey is going into the dark with his, I think it was his camera phone, but it looked good. He filmed himself going in, talking to his audience, talking to the people that he knows follows his journey. And then he goes in with an audio recorder and records four hours worth of audio. And then he comes out and records a little bit more of himself. That's what I had to work with. And what I realized was, People who are going to watch this, they they get what they're getting into. Here's a guy that's about to go into uh, just about a week of absolute darkness. If it just goes on and on about, and this is what darkness is, and this is what other people have thought about darkness, and this, you know, like, then it's just like, show the guy in the darkness, you know, let me see what happened to Aubrey. And to me, I was like, you can't see what happened to Aubrey. That's the hardest part about it. So how during 25 going on 30 minutes of dark room audio, how do you recreate that experience? And so we relied on animations. We relied on B-roll, metaphor, allegory, just patterns and landscapes and things along those lines, and a lot of sound design. Realizing that, and you might get a kick out of this, what I've always known about film, because I was a musician first, is that the soundtrack is a thousand times more important than people take credit for. And then the sound bed, just the, when somebody says something and then boom, boom. Mm. And even if it's super low, it's not like Hollywood, like dun, dun, dun. If, you know, you say something, you drop a, a, a wise bomb and everything else is super quiet, but you're hearing like a little white noise of wind and then boom, boom, it just rings out. You know, your subconscious is like, wait, hang on that moment for a little bit. Yeah, a, re a really expert score tells the animal body what emotions to produce in response to what's on the screen. And like, if you think that it's not important, watch your favorite film on mute. Mm. Like, I think what would actually work better is watch something you haven't seen on mute. Yeah. Because like, you can just feel that like your body doesn't really know what to do. And there's actually like experiments and things on YouTube. I, I'm not sure what you would have to Google to find it, but where... They play famous scenes, but they change the score. Mm -hmm. And it just completely like confuses your body. But yeah, so to your point, the score is like closely tied to the like amygdala in your brain. And this is a tangent, but one of the things that makes me like 
defensive towards watching quote-unquote conspiracy documentaries, even though I think that that's a lazy term and it's dismissive and it allows us to not engage with real truth, but also to discern through the bullshit. But the heavy-handedness of some of these documentaries with the score, Mm -hmm. where where they are saying with their words that they're being impartial, but then the score underneath what they're saying is it just makes me want to like rip my eyeballs out of my brain. It's like the people who are watching this, who are looking to be made afraid, are being terrorized by your score right now. Yeah. But so I say all that to say I agree. Please go on. Uh, well, dude, I, I I feel that and I appreciate that. And, you know, um, specifically just a, a real quick comment on the conspiracy thing. I absolutely agree. And, you know, what's funny is I, I completely own that I've talked about conspiracy and I still think there's stuff that's going on today that if I were to lay out the facts that that is, is plain even from the horse's mouth and say, here's where I think it's all going. Most people, because they, what I believe is they, they don't, they, they haven't gone to the point of, how should I say this? They haven't considered the information to the point of there's actually good in some of these conspiracies, like the technocratic socialist takeover. You know, I hear a lot of people saying that. And it's just like, what to those people, what are your thoughts on technology? And usually it's binary. It's like, yeah, it's done some good for us, but look at how it's, how it's screwing everything up. And I'm just like, you know, like the way you frame things makes it, either this good or this bad thing. So I own the conspiracy thing, but 95% of conspiracies out there, I don't think are good for you. And a lot of them I think are intelligence agencies, ruses, or, or you know, grassroots like apophenia, if you know what that means. No. It's, it's mainly, and I think there's a gift in apophenia as well, but seeing patterns, uh. but connecting the dots in ways that isn't by number. You're, you're you're cheating and making new patterns right. out of the the data didn't imply that unless you were looking for that and now right. it implies it and so I think most conspiracy is actually out of its depth but I use conspiracy as a way to evoke further inquiry and at the end of the day conspiracy is not what I'm what I'm like looking to even get out of people's thought processes more. It's that unsettling moment before a click. And that click always has to be, no matter what the outside world has to offer, I'm a human and I don't even know what that means. Mm. I don't even know what potential human has, let alone in groups, in community. So always bringing it back to that. No matter where you start off, let's just say conspiracy is a horror story. So I start off with a horror story. It may be fiction. You don't know. I'm not going to tell you whether it is or not. But by the end of it, however it rattled around inside of you, I'm going to organize it in the only way I think is constructive. And that in uh, Dan, I think it's Daniel Siegel, uh, his book, Mindsight, he was saying the best... um, and this guy like really went into some depth, and I'm gonna um, paraphrase it. Um, the depth by which, I'm sorry, hold on. The best influence to a child is either a parent or some kind of adult, some kind of close, always in your life type of figure, 
who has made sense of the ups and downs of life, not found clever tricks to avoid pain or avoid struggle, but has made sense of it, can properly speak about it, but not just speak about it, speak about it from the place where you can tell the tone and everything about it has the confidence of the way through it. Mm. Boy or girl, I have been on the top of the world and at the bottom of the of the most rock bottom you could imagine. And guess what? If you want, you can survive it. You really got to want it. You got to know what your dream is and you got to know that you're going to experience a lot of you know, falling down, getting back up, not wanting to get back up. You're going to experience a lot of that. That's the best thing for a child. And we are all children. To the day we die, we're still students of life. So when I heard that, I was thinking, I'm more about the archetypal conspiracy. And this is where I'll end this tangent. I'm more about the archetypal than the factual. Because I believe the narratives that we live by, they they mean more in a mythical sense as a story that we leave by, live by than something that I absolutely believe. Because guess what? Like a lot of people ask me, you know, so what are your thoughts on flat earth? I don't think the earth is flat, but I mean, I go off into how, what reality is, is like a hologram. It's a collective and a singular projection of our reality. That to me seems even crazier. But when I see how frustrated flat earthers are that people don't believe, we need to get people to believe. I'm thinking like, yo, you're serving a valuable function to the people who want to look deeper into things. And I don't believe whether the earth is flat or round or a cube or some kind of star tetrahedron. I don't think the actual fact of its shape matters as much as people who are willing to look at uncomfortable um, let's say, uh, knots or kinks in their belief fabric. Mm. Because when you look at that and you can unravel it, all you're doing is you're changing the dynamic of the resources you can draw upon to be more of who you are, which is infinite. So I guess that's a flowery way of saying that most people use conspiracy to try and prove people a fixed, non-dynamic, not evolving truth. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. The reason why I stick with the narrative and more mythical conspiracy is that it keeps you alive. It keeps you vigilant, but you're not really headhunting. I've never met Bill Gates. I'm not going to say a bad word about him. Never met Donald Trump. I'm not going to say a bad word about him. Hitler, even. Now, I know there are stories about it and people would get upset about that. But the thing is, is all I'm receiving are stories from the outside world. Why would I use that as a reason to harbor hatred and disgust towards somebody I've only seen on a screen? Why would I allow that screen and technology and the machinations of other cultures and bygone eras to create a sensation in me that I do not believe creates or co-creates reality well. So that's my reason for going into conspiracy. uh, I had a massive um, insight or epiphany while you were um, going down and just doing that jazz while you were doing it. And the epiphany for me was in the same way that I have been able to articulate the tragedy and also the difference. I mean, tragedy in my eyes, I'm not claiming this for other people, of like uh, religious people who tend or who attempt to interpret their holy book as essentially a history book 
that they're literalizing the symbolic in a way where the reason it feels tragic is if this is at least my perspective, if you understood the essence of what you are a child of religiously, that you would try to prove it with the scientific reality tunnel is proof that you have been so captured by the scientific reality tunnel that you don't even know what you're fighting for. Mm. If you're trying to make historical, factual attempts at arguing a parable or a metaphor whose wisdom is infinitely deeper than any fact. So there's that star. And then there's the tragedy of what's happening in the spiritual community where people who haven't taken the time to humbly sit at the foot of how the unconscious communicates to the conscious in symbol and when they go have an ayahuasca experience and then they have this vision of that other person across the room that was attractive to them before they got into the room that the vision told them that they're meant to be together and they see that as a literal truth instead of a symbolic truth and just the wreckage that I've seen happen in people's lives when they literalize the symbolic when it comes to their visions mm. or their dreams. The thing that's interesting there is I have enough life experience where I've dealt with enough people where some actually are. And that's up to each individual person to try to parse that truth. But it tends to be if the ego is excited about the literalization of the symbolic when it comes to a vision or a dream, you're probably playing with fire and you're probably going to get taught by the universe that that wasn't for you in that way. But so in the same way that I can see those two things, it wasn't until your jazz session on or on the mythical mythical conspiracy, conspiracy where I'm like, <laughs> oh, shit. And it, it connected a bunch of threads, a lot of threads for me. And I'm going to try to see what I can do to make my way through them. But there's the people who argue against conspiracy theories. And I tend to be in that. It's, it's funny. When I'm talking to people who are like fully in, I'll be the one that like is like, here's how it's not. And then if I'm around people that are fully out, I'm the person that's like, ah, you should come look at this thing. <laughs> but um, I tend to have found myself in situations in the last two years where I tend to be the one that believes the least fervently of the current zeitgeistual conspiracies, quote, heavy air quote. Mm -hmm. And I am trying to come at it as fact, but it's, they're also presenting it as fact, but I'm realizing now and listening to you, uh, I am the, you know, there's that Mark Twain quote, uh, don't fight with, you know, people who are basically blaming and judging you because they're pigs, they're used to the mud, they'll bring you down into it and enjoy it more. I fucking butchered that, but you guys know what I'm saying. Is it's like I got caught in the trap of even meeting them at that place. But really, what I'm feeling into is that there is a mythological significance to the fact that there's an archetypical place in the psyche that holds the feeling of conspiracy. And it actually links to my 
hardest experience that I've ever had on psychedelics. And I haven't shared it on the podcast, so it's going to organically come up and we'll just grok what the fuck is here. Beautiful. But who was it with, by the way? What the maestro? Uh, no, this was actually a very heavy ketamine plus cannabis combination in a dark room. Wow. In a room that was constructed to be in complete darkness. And then very intense music. Heavy. And breath work. But um, there's like an archetypical feeling associated with conspiracy. And it's like the anticipatory approach of something that is essentially like awe. Like I talked about in the documentary, mm -hmm. like awe has this combination of like terror and complete gripped by. And it's how we fundamentally relate to the archetypical class of the unknown because the unknown can both be the thing that kills us or any possible pleasure or delight that we've never known. Like that fundamentally is what the unknown represents. And there's a, this feeling about the like archetypically conspiratorial part where it's like, as you get closer to it, there's this rising sense of like, I can feel I'm about to have an epiphany. Yeah. And then at least in my understanding or in my experience, especially if you've never been baptized by that archetype, is that on the other side of the epiphany is like hopelessness mm. or terror or like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is what it is. Mm. Or at least this is how it lands in my meat suit. And I can feel that I have resistance sharing the idea that was at the core of my hell experience because it's the type of idea that if expressed and if the um, prerequisites are accepted by the person listening, it's like a metaphysical um, like bug that can't be removed. Mm. And so I'm actually going to gauge the room and just actually like, just like feel, um, you guys know and respect my feeling into the significance of something. That is how I truly feel. Do you think that I should share it or should we talk about something else? I think we're already on the track there. <laughs> All right. Let's not put obstacles in its way. Okay. Yeah. And actually the theme of this, you know, of the, of the medicine that you're bringing is say yes. Okay. So, um, I've probably have done like 50 to 60 psychedelic experiences of varying degrees. And of those three, uh, I've experienced what I lazily have termed a hell experience. And, um, the first time I experienced it, the essence of the hell experience was the felt sense that um, my consciousness was not my consciousness. It was the consciousness that was holding all of existence. You know, the belief that it was one thing was just a part of being in the illusion, but mm. I, it was at this space where it could grok its entirety and that everything was everything that was knowable was within its, you know, purview. And that something like broke or clicked and it like crashed, almost like a computer program crashing. 
and the felt sense was be- and it it came with an utter gnosis not not a thought not like because this was the consciousness that was housing all experience there was nothing behind it that could fix it there was nothing outside of it that could remedy it and because time was also a thing that happened within the one consciousness and it broke this is now forever and eventually i quote unquote came out of that experience and my felt sense as i was coming out of it because the gnosis was so clear as i was coming out of it the vibe was i'm too weak to accept this i'm going to dive back into the illusion of duality and I'm going to just go live the illusion. So that was the first time. And that was the like first like opening of the aperture. Mm. And that was when I accidentally ate like 160 milligrams of THC. And just not a good idea. That'll do it. And then <laughs> a year ago, around this time, um, I had used ketamine quite a few times. But it was always as a lozenge or as a spray or even as like a medical injection. Um, I don't know why I decided to do this, but I just, I decided to snort the amount that I would normally take as a lozenge. And apparently the absorption rate when you snort it compared to a lozenge is like twofold at least. Um, and I ended up snorting 300 milligrams of THC or, you know, of, uh, ketamine, ketamine, which is in hindsight, fucking ridiculous. (laughs) Um, and I re-entered into that space, but with much less fear. But the sensation was almost like I have, oh, 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 oh. And then forever. It's this feeling of like, oh, yeah, this is it. It's a single consciousness that holds all possible experience. And a part of the experience of the one is to forget that it's the one so that duality can happen, so that the interconnection of all the things can interact in a way where there's love and coffee and dancing and sex and phones and art. But that the ultimate destiny of the one is to return to the one and the felt sense of consciousness as the one is both incredibly lonely in a way that the word lonely can't capture, Mm -hmm. but also inevitable and also forever, forever. And with the help of ketamine, I was able to like, like non-judgmentally just accept the like, oh yeah, I've, I've, this consciousness has been experiencing every possible life. This is the end of this life because it's cracked open and I'm going to dissolve back into the thing. And as soon as I can't hold it anymore, I'm going to come back into the fractal as a thing. Interestingly, after that trip, the very next day I got COVID and I, I wasn't hanging out with people, but it's like, it felt like the, the experience was so jarring to my like immune system hmm. that, so that's an interesting note. But now this gets us to the 
most recent one, which was like eight days ago. I got exposed to this idea. I forget what it's called, but essentially it's a thought experiment that um, if AI ever exists in the future, um, and that if consciousness is is ever able to be uploaded to a computer in the way that like Elon Musk is attempting to do with Neuralink, that um, the thought experiment is that if the perfect general artificial intelligence was created that actually wasn't like these spooky movies and it it genuinely was able to uh, reduce the suffering in the universe completely over the course of however long it took and that it genuinely was programmed correctly to um, like not do some weird thing that we that are is a part of like the hollywood version of how it could go wrong it goes rogue yeah right that um it's just running the utilitarian equation that as soon as i exist i can beautifully end the suffering or dramatically reduce the suffering that that's not for the good of blah 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 <laughs> that that thing would you know in a way that I don't understand, but that is grounded in quantum physics in a way where I'm not just lightly throwing out quantum physics to try to prove a, an, an idea, but that this is a collective thought experiment that has emerged amongst scientists and researchers on an online forum, um, that it would reach back through time and torment through suffering any of the individuals that could contribute to its creation whenever they got off path of contributing towards its creation so that it could be made manifest to genuinely alleviate the suffering. And I actually don't vibe with that that much because th it's just, it doesn't really resonate with me, but the felt sense of if there is a, Instead of trying to philosophically explain why I think it might be true, because I don't know, I'm just going to explain the experience. The experience that I had like eight days ago was the felt sense of being back in that omni-consciousness, remembering that it had forgot that it already knew that it was the omni-consciousness. And that I was there for so long in that space because of the amounts and the combination and the darkness that I, I, I genuinely arose at a place where I had forgotten that there was an Eric and that I had accepted. It's, it's so hard to articulate, but the image that comes to mind is kind of the like uh, fractal unfolding of the room beyond the black hole and interstellar, but kind mm. of this like feeling of like, you have actually been perceiving the truth of this singular thing and you didn't even realize that you were never actually in the illusion of duality. And again, this is all a felt textured sense. It's not a thought that's happening. And that the feeling was an uttered gnosis this is this is the truth 
this is, this is eternity. This is the whole thing. It, it's, it's hard to articulate, but it's like the felt sense was if this is the whole thing, then this is the worst thing ever. Mm. And the feeling next to that is like, and no anger, like no like parent being like, fuck you, kid. It was just this like elemental. It doesn't matter that you think that. Like it's, this is the game. And the thread that I was trying to weave. Like a prison with no prison guards, just the way it is. or Right. Like yeah. prison is, cl- yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like a infinite, eternal prison where there is no one to blame there is no structure that can be escaped there are no other cellmates there is nothing that can be done but there was this felt sense of like there's no way that this would be the universe that the god that i believe in or any god that i could possibly believe in would allow to be and then the like felt sense came in of like but yeah, a computer that's just running an infinite amount of possible realities. This is just one of the things. Hmm. I can feel that I didn't land on the point that I was worried about if I articulated, it might actually be unsafe for other people to hear. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't and I'm not going to try to go back because it's hmm. almost like a philosophical attempt to try to explain the terror and the hopelessness of the experience. And what's interesting, man, is so, of course, I've I've done the dance enough to know that even if it feels like it's forever and it's the worst, I always fall back in like a mantra. And um, for my first hell experience, the mantra was, um, end this, end this. The mantra from the second one um I actually don't know if I had a mantra for the second one. I was just in this hopeless mess. But the third one was so incredibly like unholdable, but I could feel that my, I could actually feel like my body needing to say the word bless, Hmm. bless, bless. And I somehow got through it, got to the point where I had really epic downloads as I was starting to come into into my body. But even as I was starting to come into my body, there's this felt sense of like, you know what the gnosis is. You're forgetting. It's okay. Go back into the thing. And the thing that's weird, man, is it's like, um, when I'm in the space It feels like an absolute, with a G, unflinching gnosis. And there's this part of me that's like, um, I could feel that I could cry now if I really felt into it. And it's like, how the fuck is this? I don't even know who I'm talking to. It's like, why the fuck is this my gnosis? Hmm. Like, What the fuck? Has that evolved at all since then? I mean, how often have you returned back to it? I mean, you're obviously not in that exact state. Right. And, you know, and all things pass yeah, to the next. It's, it's an interesting thing to feel into where, like, 
from the perspective of that part of my psyche, I'm so back in the illusion. Where it's like, yeah, meh. you know, like life is worth living. The sunset itself is proof that life has meaning. Looking at someone in the eye and just listening to whatever it is that's alive in them puts me into a flow state where none of that shit is ever a worry. I fucking love that I like, I just, every time I get the chance to dance, I dance. Every time I get the chance to laugh, I laugh. Every time I get the chance to cry, I cry. And life is absolutely Renaissance paintingly beautiful. And also, there is a part of me that's like, like, I know that I I hold both of these things both as like maybes. I really like one. This is the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life, period, bar none. Mm-hmm. And my favorite philosopher is Robert Anton Wilson. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh maybe my God. Logic. Yeah, brother. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Maybe logic. The thing that uh, like quietly haunts me in a, in a weird way that it doesn't haunt me until I'm back in it. But it's like, it's the felt sense of gnosis with that experience. And this is the last part of the tangent. I would just love to hear whatever is alive for you is that I've never had an experience on any exogenous, non-ordinary state of consciousness-inducing chemical that the gnosis felt inauthentic or inaccurate other than high doses of marijuana. Hmm. At least in my experience, there's something about, and maybe it's because of the quality that I've ingested, but that marijuana has this ability to almost like hijack your gnosis in a way where it's really fear grabbing something. It's almost like fear found the crown of gnosis and it's like, I'm going to go talk to the ego, you know? Hmm. But I haven't experienced that on anything else. Um, And it's so, so like the cannabis experience opened up that portal inside of me. And then these last two experiences, it's like I'm processing the like rupture in my psyche that came from that experience. Yeah, you know what comes up for me with that is... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. And yeah, I, please finish. I shared that whole thing to essentially say that the archetypical imago of the conspiracy is essentially this felt sense that we all have of like, I have a feeling that what I am perceiving in some way is meaningfully to the point of maybe even being lethally wrong. And it's almost like there's a part of me that wants to see the veil flipped. And that that's like a fundamental part of all of what all of us need. And the interesting thing about like conspiracy theories is and, and this is where I'll close it and then we'll get into the thing, but this is actually why I started the whole and I got lost in my own sauce of trying to really feel back into that experience. But it's that conspiracy theories actually serve our culture as one of the only psychologically significantly powerful enough initiation rituals. Mm. And I've never articulated this until now, but our culture is fucking deprived of 
psychologically significant initiation rituals. And one of the functions of initiation rituals is for the child to symbolically and psychologically die so they can become an adult. And there's all sorts of interesting things that different cultures will do to like have the child kill psychologically the mother and the father so that they can go become what they are. And that the mythological or archetypical conspiracy does that symbolically. So if you think that culture is taking care of you, end of story. A conspiracy is essentially the mythological initiation of killing your father. Mm-hmm. I see where you're going with that. And that um, I know for me, my first initiation before any psychedelics, before any real interesting thing was I saw the film Zeitgeist. And I could feel that there was a thing in me ever since I was a kid, ever since I was exposed to religion. It was like, none of you motherfuckers are telling me the truth. Mm. Like I could just feel it in their body. And as soon as I got the first story that like had enough facts and enough good music underneath it to like get me to feel like, fuck these motherfuckers. They, what the fuck? That that was actually the beginning of me being able to go down the path of being my own adult. And so th- there's this, the like epiphany that I was having as you were talking was, wow, I've never considered it as a mythological category upon itself. Mm-hmm. I've never allowed myself to think about it as what's the symbolic function of it as an archetype and not getting lost in the nitty gritty of the facts. Right. And then I was like, oh, fuck. The reason why like flat earth gets so sticky for people is that it exposes the fucking bashful limits of what our epistemology is capable of doing as beings embodied inside of these goofy ass meat suits. Mm-hmm. It's like all science has to start with some big ass fucking assumptions. Leap and Leap of faith, yeah. And do not get me wrong. Our ability to create coherent models based off of the scientific method, I believe is one of the greatest inventions that humanities has ever come up with. And also, we are incredibly undereducated in our ability to actually think scientifically. And so most of us who think that we think scientifically have just chosen the science facts that we agree with to to inform us about how we see the world and that a lot of how it's taught to us is not like the essence of science is the scientific method. It's not the facts of science. And like someone who holds the spirit will arrive or will at least be able to question the process that derived the facts and then generate their own facts. But most people haven't been trained in that and they just accept the story that comes with the facts. Going down a tangent, my three points were, thank you, I see that. And they actually probably serve unconsciously as one of the only meaningful initiatory rights that we have in our culture. It was my college. So getting into, and Zeitgeist, I know Peter Joseph. Uh, my band actually played on the first three Zeitgeist media festivals. And then my wife and I did an acoustic set at the fourth. Uh, I know Peter, I wouldn't say well, but um, met him on many occasions. And it was exactly that. It was the fact that there were several things about that film that made me want to become a filmmaker, not a conspiracy theorist. But I realized the power of conspiracy in that moment. Because if you can challenge certain 
um, pre-digested beliefs that we just pick up along the way at a time and place and an age when we're not ready to challenge those things. So we're just like, I'll, I'll log it, I'll move forward accordingly until I even have the bandwidth or the wherewithal to know what I'm talking about if I wanted to challenge it. So he started with religion and, you know, was, you know, where did that myth come from? And was Christ even real? And, and then he, he made a hard jump, you know, into 9-11, a hard <laughs> jump. And I was like, okay, cool. This is shifting. I like, I'll get back to later, whether I agree with the jump or whatever that moment was. But then he goes into 9-11, then he goes into the banking system and RFID chips. And my my liking of that was he didn't stick with certain facts and he made it broad. So it got you into this inquiry tunnel. And where I'm going with all this is that I not just believe, I operate from the principle that we are all magicians, albeit most of us, the vast majority of us are immature magicians. We don't acknowledge or realize the fact that we are creating and co-creating, but we are. And so what I noticed with me, have you ever seen the movie Divergent? I love it, yeah. Okay, so the whole uh, like premise of that is there are certain people who when crisis or emergency or even fear crops up, they don't shut down. They, it actually turns them on. When I saw Zeitgeist, I was on acid. I was not scared, but I had that, as you said in, in the Darkness film, um, simultaneously rapture and awe. And I had that where I was like, this is big. This is bigger than me. And he did it well because it was anonymous. It wasn't all about, hey, who's Peter Joseph? Well, send him money and you know, sign up for blah, blah, blah. It was none of that. It, it, at the end, it was just a website. But it was like, who is this? Is this an entire underground movement trying to get me to wake up? I felt like this is big. This is bigger than me. And it stayed. I didn't even have the language for it there. But I, it stayed in that mythological realm. Because the first thing I started doing was going down rabbit holes and investigation tunnels. And I did it. But at no point, and this is where I have to be humble and and you know, as much as my path, some people would be like, well, how lucky for you. But I never got scared, just like going up on stage and speaking or singing in front of people, never had butterflies. What it did was it instantly gave me purpose. Like, this is what I'm here to do. I feel resonance with this. That doesn't mean that everything the dude said is factually correct and I should live by it like some static dogma that never evolves. No, In time, I've disregarded many of the things he said. In time, I've disregarded many of the shit that came out of my mouth, right? In my own films. I've disregarded some of those things, but why do I still get people saying, dude, Ben, in an hour and 26 minutes of Chimatica, you changed the way I look at everything, myself, my potential, my family. And, And then they would go on and on about like, you know, this happened in my life because of me. And this happened in my life because of me making this film. And I would always do the, thank you for thinking that that was me doing it. But mm-hmm. there are other people who said, fuck you, you're going to die burning in hell. And I even said to those people, maybe, you know? <laughs> so for the rest who are saying, thank you, you saved my life. Like, no, you did that. 
I'm a 25-year-old confused psychedelic head in a band that is just starting to figure this shit out. But I didn't research for 15 years before I made that film. I realized I wanted to make a film, then I started researching. I realized in that moment on acid watching Zeitgeist, I have to do this better because there's one thing he's not pointing out in this film. He barely mentions consciousness at all. He barely references it to the individual human and all the abstract resources before things come into material manifestation. He didn't mention any of that. And he took religious institutions as religion. He took science institutions as science. And he had to because he did an incredible job. He can't be perfect. He can't think 20 years down the line, I'm going to make this film, but I also need to cover my bases after people do 20 years of research. No, he did his job. It was incredible. But I realized I was like, there is me. And me is making this film better by exploring human potential because it's pointless without that. Therein lies the archetype, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the myth. And the myth is that Fear serves no purpose. Fear is bad. If you're sensing fear, if conspiracy scares you, shame on you for sharing conspiracy. Me, I'm like, we're going to wake up or we're not going to wake up. I'd like to see some waking up. And guess what? We're getting it right now in the world. It doesn't matter what you believe is going on right now post-2020 or who you think is behind it. If you're investigating deeper, that is an evolving mirror in front of your face of you. But if you get lost in this, and you mentioned the word hopelessness, when you, when you feel into conspiracy and you feel hopelessness, there is a gift in that. And that gift is to turn over that feeling. What do you get when you manifest from the space of hopelessness? Well, it's, it's kind of easy to see where that leads to. And, and each of us, that'll be a different answer. But once you realize that that tool is not ideal for the task that most of us would like to build our futures with, then we begin to realize that can you cause yourself to believe what you don't currently believe? Like, so for us in this room, if your life depended on believing that the earth is flat, could you find a way to believe it? For sure. Right? Because it's not about the facts anymore. And uh, so many people, and this is where science institutions go wrong. They're like, the data is clear. Well, wait a minute. Data is not knowledge. Science is to know, the word to know. And that's one aspect of consciousness. It the When you get to, well, are you anti-science? Well, mm, I am a scientist. So no, I'm not anti-science. Am I anti-science institutions? No, but how do I make that distinct from one another? Science is an aspect of consciousness. Science institutions are what groups of people, particularly with power, who want to keep power, do. That's a science institution. And there, there are enough cases, I don't need to get into it, where pharmaceutical companies fudge facts so they can beat the placebo effect. And by the way, why aren't we talking about how fucking incredible the placebo effect is? Right. We've had to spend billions of dollars removing consciousness from scientific inquiry mm. so consciousness doesn't mess up the reference point by which we build the facts of all the rest of our science. We're starting from the wrong premise. I... Ben Stewart, I'm a scientist, I'm a philosopher, I am a religious devotee, and I am an artist. And I'll, I'll break this down. In Britain, I believe it was, post-Renaissance, 
uh, or at least through the Renaissance, there was the four pillars, and that is science, philosophy, religion, and art. And I like doing it in that order, even though spar sounds cooler. Sp- <laughs> uh, science, philosophy, art, and religion. But I say it this way because science is the process to know. You come out of the womb or even in the womb, you're just receiving raw data. You don't know what to make of it, but it's not like you're not receiving it. You're hearing things. You're seeing warm glows of light. You're hearing your parents argue or cuddle or whatever it might be. You're receiving. But that raw experience that comes in, it can't sit idly by. Not only does it not, it cannot sit idly by. The very next thing you do when a baby is sitting there and they're flailing their arms, they don't know what they're doing. They're just flailing their arms around and then they accidentally smack their hand on something sharp and hard. It sends info to them and then they start directing their behavior from that point forward with that little bit of understanding. So science can't sit idly by. We have to build a philosophy about what it means, what we've experienced and what it means. That is the safety. I don't want to die. So if you are in fight or flight, you don't try new things. Paul Cech Cech always says, if you're running from a tiger, it's not a good idea to throw in a cartwheel. (laughs) right? Novelty has not helped you in the past because it's new. So you, you can't fall back on novelty knowing that it will save you. So that's the anticipation of the unknown that psychedelics and, and saying yes to brand new things has for us, but you have to be held in some kind of space of safety and the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs before you can really make good of novelty. So where I'm going with this is science can't sit idly by. Once you get raw experience, you start building a philosophy based on that. But once you build a philosophy, whether it's crude or it's sophisticated, it can't sit idly by. It starts building into what do you commit to? What does it mean? Who am I in reference to what I believe the world is and what does that mean I shall do with my time? So it can't sit idly by. You have to devote yourself to it. So then we move to... Um, religion. Wow, I really like where you're going. The word religion comes from the Latin religari. That means to bind, to hold together. Think Mr. Miyagi and Daniel LaRusso putting the bonsai tree back together, binding it back to a singular entity. A lot of people are like, see, they're trying to trap you and bind you in their contract. Who's they? Religion is an aspect of consciousness. When you commit to something. When you believe something enough that you commit, this is me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to live according to this, until further notice, I'm committed to this. But once you commit to something, what's the very last thing that has to happen? Do shit. Art. Exactly. Create. Manifest. Art is the final step in that, not a circle, because then you go back to science, because once you give yourself your art out into the world— You start getting feedback like I did in that premiere room. And that feedback comes back and it re-informs the philosophy, which re-informs how committed you are. And then your art comes out a little bit differently. But history doesn't repeat, but it surely rhymes. So it goes in a spiral. It doesn't just keep going in a circle. fire. I've never heard that. That's fire. I can't take full credit. I did hear it once after I was listening to a podcast about the fourth turning. That's fucking fire. History don't repeat, but it surely rhymes. So as that, that shows you that you start from a reference point and then you don't end up on the other side of the galaxy for step two. It's very close to step one, step two. 
but they're disappearing steps. Once you've gotten to step two, step one is useless to you unless you're in fight or flight and you need to retreat. So what, where I'm going with this is as you go through that cycle, all of them is the, um, what, what do you call that? Uh, not the Fibonacci sequence, but the golden ratio. If you've seen a straight line and then the golden ratio is like this wave pattern that starts getting tighter and tighter to that line, it never goes directly on center, but it always gets closer and closer and closer. Yeah. It's always this refinement, like martial artists, like you're never done with the fundamentals. You're just getting better and better at you know a sophisticated artistic expression of you, which is either the martial art or whatever it might be. So as that keeps refining itself, that is the process of coming to know. So when you mentioned science, and, and this is colloquial, so I, I also do that as well. But when I say science, I try to make a distinction between science and science institutions. And same thing with religion, because a lot of people have problems with religion. But what I say is, no, nah, religion is how you commit. If you look at the root word, it's how you commit to what you believe in. And you will be wrong. You will be wrong. But that's part of life too, being wrong, um, learning from that. So where I'm going with this is that's what I felt when I first started getting into conspiracy is this is the direction. I don't care where I'm at on the journey. And I, you know, when I started making films, as much as I got people saying, you changed my life, I was also getting people saying, you know, you're completely off. Did you even read a book about ancient Egypt? And I would get people so freaking rude, but I had to do my best to like, okay, take what they say and not how they say it and see how you can be better. So I got my school of life from becoming a viral internet documentary maker and authors were coming to me. It's like, let me tell you all the ways in which you are wrong, Ben Stewart. And I, and I would like be like, okay, at first it would like antagonize me a little bit, but then I would realize I didn't have to go to college or pay these motherfuckers anything. And they're teaching me exactly <laughs> where I'm wrong, right? It's not even a template. God, that, that's such a good point. You know, so uh, that's when I started realizing the school of life of being a documentary maker and influencer and learning how to not overly care. Care just enough, but not overly care that people are telling me I'm wrong. Okay, I've made so many mistakes. Now I'm getting used to it. You know, I'm getting used to the feeling of it. So I began realizing that, you know, Ben, all those moments in which you feel like, you're afraid, like I'm afraid that I didn't do the film well enough, or I'm afraid that I was wrong about that point, or I'm afraid that I missed that opportunity. To me, it's like, okay, it's not about wallowing in it. It's how do you leverage that fear? What can you learn from that fear? So that's the reason why I wanted to get into that spar or spra, science, philosophy, <laughs> religion, and art spiral that we can go on is because none of this is about are we safe or are we not? Which is where most conspiracy theorists go. Mm. Are we safe or are we not? Means I'm not taking into consideration my potential. I'm just looking at the fixed external world and I have to come up with some philosophy. Has it been kind to me lately? And at the end of the day, if you can come to the, the, the real gnosis that I have put myself exactly where I am in life, unbeknownst to me on how, but I know I'm magic. I know I'm a magician. So the more I acknowledge 
There are fundamental best practices and skills that you can learn as a magician to move through life that are timeless and they will never go away. And I'll, I'll name a few. One is humility. And humility is so powerful, especially if you're going to be an influencer or go out there and speak your mind because you actually gain more, how should I say it? Receptivity in your audience. People lean in a little bit more when you whisper, when you shout, when you're in the megaphone telling people the, the, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, doing the Alex Jones thing. And I like him. I think he serves a purpose. Just like I think Q serves a purpose. I think flat earth serves a purpose. I think fundamentalist Christians serve a purpose. I think we have small um, concepts of how to fit them into our paradigm. So that's why I'm like, be okay with your imperfection and just keep walking on the path for the fuck yes. Keep looking for that fuck yes. Because you will be wrong and you will be wrong a lot, but be wrong in the right way and you can change the world. And you look back at history. Science is the history of most people being wrong about most things most of the time. In the right way. In the right way. Because we would not be here if they hadn't fucked up back then. So what does that mean about fucking up? And what does that mean about mistakes? I have a sneaky suspicion that reality is not something that anyone has ever figured out. It is the mystery because it poses the question to us. And the root of that is quest. It sets us off on a quest. If we weren't to be on that quest, if we were to live in the complete gnosis that we are God all the time, what would be the point of the quest? Right. What would be the point of it? So this is why I love being a filmmaker. I don't have to be perfect. And guess what? When I'm wrong, now I've found some practices that, you know, hopefully I don't use as dogma, but I'm like, ah, artistic license, whatever. And they're like, yeah, but you got that wrong and you got this wrong and you could be teaching people the wrong thing. Hey, everyone's teaching everyone the wrong thing. No one knows shit. I'm, I'm so certain that we're all full of shit and that is perfect. And that is part of the great Tao. I'm so certain of it because it keeps unfolding in my life in a direction where I feel more goodness, more harmony, more tribe coming together now during crisis period, right? This crisis, what's happening? I've met some of the most incredible people since this crisis. Why? Because I'm leveraging it. I'm not cowering in the corner, forgetting about my potential. So that's what I want to say about conspiracy. Most people frame conspiracy in the wrong world in the wrong way because they feel like it is a factual, fixed, static statement about the external world and they don't use it as a mirror because we don't even know what a human is. Can you admit I don't even know who I am, what I'm doing here? Whoa, so how are we skipping to step 25 saying we know what happened to building 7 in 9/11? So, you know, like we haven't 100%. even, we haven't even covered the fundamentals. So that's okay. As long as we remember, just like those uh, martial artists, you're never done with the fundamentals. You're never done returning to that humility. And I, I guess I'll just stay on that one best practice, humility. Always remember that you were wrong. That is why compassion is good. That is why giving the benefit of the doubt to others is good. And that is why finding a way to be like, yeah, I was wrong, whatever. I was wrong. You know, and if it hurts somebody, I'm so sorry. That was never my intent. I mean it. Cause I've had some people say like, you ruined my life with that film. I was so scared afterwards. 
I'm so sorry. That was never my attempt. And some people said like, I, I, I left my wife and my kids and I ran off to a cabin in the woods to wait this thing out. And I'm like, wait, what out, dude? Like, you know, yes, I, I, I said there's stuff going on in the world, but wait, what out? What are you going to do in the woods? Why did you leave your family? I didn't realize that the power of film could do that to human beings. I had no clue. And once I realized it, then I was like, Ben, be as humble as you possibly can. Be as humble as you possibly can. Be as humble as you possibly can, but be fucking bold and speak your truth. And if you can marry those two, that's magic. You don't have to go through tons of years of school for being a magician, dude. Just be you, be bold, but be humble. So I'll leave it there. Graham, mark that down as one of the best jazz rants ever that's ever happened on this podcast. Oh, man. Uh, so much came up for me in that first thank you. Wow. Goddamn. I'm going to try to trace the three major things that arose and then see where the fuck it goes. The first one was what you were saying about the inspiration that you had after watching Zeitgeist. And it was like, uh, I want to do that and I want to do it better. And it's not because he did anything wrong. <clears throat> the vision that I had is Carl Jung has this idea. I think he called it the pleroma, but that there's a dimension above the physical dimension where the gods fight and that the gods are essentially the most powerful stories that are believed by a culture and the, the, the mana or the prayer that makes those gods live is whether or not you act out those stories. And so like, and you, you can see the echoes of the gods and the isms. Mm. So, um, libertarianism, capitalism, socialism, etc. These are fundamentally like ideas about how to behave. And when enough humans believe in them and belief is action, they become a thing. It feels like everyone is born with a dharma. And the dharma is like the sacred thread that, that, that this body has to one of those gods up there that they want to give power to. That like they're almost like a child of. And when you're inspired... It's because someone has done some behavior in the world that's an echo of one of these titans. And that, like the call of the artist is find all the people through history who have served that God by creating on its behalf and you climb to the top of them and then you make the next thing. And it's almost like the humans are trying to build the bridge to that titan or to that God. Mm. And that we could just say that there's a God that holds the archetypical feeling of conspiracy like in its religious essence. And that, you know, you're one of the creators that's called to add a new layer of like sediment on top of that mountain to get it a little bit closer to that deity. That was one of the things that I saw. And I think that that's like such a beautiful way for artists to recognize if you're in denial of your dharma, you're going to see those behaviors and you're going to feel judgment and resentment and that that's actually a pointer to you that, oh, there's a denial of a dharma in you that you're seeing echoed in what someone else is doing in the world. When you flip that to the other side, it's like, I'm inspired by you to the point where I'm going to do something better than you because I see you as a brother or a sister on the path of trying to build a mountain towards that thing. 
So that was one of the things that came up. The other thing was that beautiful framework that you offered about like, I am a scientist and an artist and a philosopher and a religious devotee. And one of the things that like breaks my heart is um, I had a segment on one of Aubrey's podcasts where I talked about the difference between science and sciencism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we pay attention to the people who critique and who quote unquote hate, even though I think that that's a way to dismiss the essence of what my third thread is because of what you shared. But it's that the thread of critique that I got is like, is this due to fucking scientists? Like, and that there's this thing that's happened in our culture where institutional science has gotten to a point in the way our education system works, where it's like, if you don't go through the quote unquote education to get the letters at the end of your name, you don't get to even participate in the conversation. But what one of the functions of the education, like for me specifically, like if I had gotten the education that I felt called to in psychiatry, I would not have been taught how to be a philosopher of the soul or a healer of the soul. I would have been taught how to memorize hundreds of difference of different pharmaceutical interactions without ever having a class on whether or not that was the right thing to do. Because in the age that I would have been trained as a psychiatrist, it had already been corrupted by pharmaceutical companies. And there's a very clear documented history of how this had happened. And so the people who have earned the right, quote unquote, by the culture to have these conversations have been, quote unquote, educated in a way where they don't even get to function as a true, like, renaissance scientist. And then other people who don't have that letter at the end of their name, they serve as the crabs in the bucket of anyone who is trying to offer any type of story that isn't in alignment with what the quote-unquote education has created as the reality tunnel of the people that get the letters at the end of their name. Mm -hmm. And it's a tragedy because the essence of science is one of the greatest articulations and discoveries I believe in that humanity has ever come up with because it's the essence of matter. It's at least one of the fundamental tools of being a magician. And we are all magicians. So that was one thing that came up. And then the third one, which is so fucking beautiful, which I love so much, which I can feel is super important for the role that I'm stepping into and what we are going to be doing as a company for the next 10 years, is if you commit to being humble and bold in the age of the internet, you have the opportunity to learn at a rate that no human in history had ever been given the opportunity to do so. Great point. Because if you put your shit out boldly and you're willing to learn from the critiques and you hone the very new skill that's being demanded of people of sifting through the projections and the hate to actually get a master class from the collective intelligence of the just wrong points of what you were boldly sharing, that you get an education that literally no human mm-hmm. in history that we know of has got the opportunity to get. 
And like what I feel really empowered by and excited for because of your share is it's like dare to put your opinions out there in a way where you are seeking to learn and it's going to elevate like my wisdom at a rate that I'm super fucking excited by. And so just thank you, thank you, thank you. And the question, there's a a couple of questions I want to use to close this out because we could go for three fucking hours. (laughs) Um, But the first question is, what was your favorite story as a child? Either a book that was read to you or a movie that you just had to watch over and over again or like a bedtime story. And then I invite you to tell it to us as you would tell it to your child as a bedtime story if they're curious and they're like 10 and you really wanted to drop in. So first, what's the story? And then I'm going to ask you to not explain it to us, but to tell it to us like we're your child. Okay. Um, so first, tell the, tell what the story is or just launch into the story? First, just tell us what the story is or the movie or the book. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you asked this because last night, usually I sing my, my boys to sleep. I have twin two-year-old boys and usually I sing them to sleep, but this time I just launched into a story and I just made one up um, about a girl named McGill who called herself Lil and everyone knew her as Nancy because it's lyrics from Rocky Raccoon. And um, it was just interesting. I had no idea of where I was going to go with it. And then I ended up telling a deep story about myself. Very interesting. Um, with that though, like the, the earliest stories I remember I was in love with, cause like, I think I said, I was in love with, um, indigenous shamans and blue whales. Um, so there was a book about Squanto. Um, I can't remember the story of it, but I know that was my favorite book, but my favorite story that I used to get lost in all the way up until my mid-20s, I remember acting it out, um, was a movie called The Emerald Forest. You see that, either of you? No. Okay, so it's this kid in Brazil. He's... Well, so... Oh, yeah, so don't explain it. Right, so um, it's The Emerald Forest. The Emerald Forest, yeah. And so I would invite you to tell that story to us like we were... So not like how your kids are now, but if they were like 10 and you could really like feel that there was like, let's just say that they're 10 Mm -hmm. and you're going to drop in for like three to five minutes. Cool. And I invite you to tell us a story in the way that you would tell it to them. All right. So first I need to come up with the names. Timmy is too weird and casual. Um, Let's say um, Johannes was this boy. He's a bright, blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy. And he's down in Brazil with his father, and his father is a logger. And his father is cutting down unimaginable hectares of trees every day, but he doesn't see the issue to that. He's just a little boy. He loves being around his dad. He's in Brazil. All the workers are brown-skinned. They're a lot shorter and they, they speak with this language he doesn't understand. And some of them have war paint on, and he always thought that was cool. So every now and then he would go into his mama's uh, makeup cabinet and put on some war paint. And he would just wander off into the woods and um, not really knowing 
what he was doing, but he knew that this is where most of these brown-skinned, shorter people and some with war paint would hang out. They would just all, after a hard day's work, they would just wander off into uh, the woods. So he wandered and he wandered, trying to figure out what it, what's he going to do with his war paint. And he's not really paying attention to much until he got to a point where he realized he turned around and he couldn't tell the exact direction back home and spooked him. So he just turned directly around to his mind and he started walking back. And then he walked and he walked and he walked and he realized he'd been walking longer than he strayed away the first time. So he must've gone in the wrong direction. So he tried to calculate where and how he could get back to his father. Meanwhile, his father is just now starting to realize it's late and he hasn't seen Johannes. So um, he he goes out, he starts yelling for him, and he uh, he says um, to uh, Diego, one of the workers who was indigenous but kind of decided to to start working for this logging company. He sent Diego out, please go out and find my son. I'm not sure where he's at. And he said, okay, so we went out to go look. And he went out all night and he came back in the early hours of the morning and he said, I see no sign of him except for this one spot where I see his, uh, um, what, I, what I believe to be his footprint. And I said, oh, okay, so show me the spot. So we went back and the father confirmed, yeah, that's Johannes's footprint. And so they start yelling. He's starting to really freak out. He finally tells his wife, his wife, gets really freaked out. So they send out search parties. And um, it moves through this fear of the parents that they may never see their child again. And a week goes by, no Johannes. A month goes by, no Johannes. Six months go by, no Johannes. They're about at the point where they feel they're never going to see their child again. So they do a memorial. They put a, um, a coffin in the ground and they put a tombstone just to show this is, this is how we honor our child, Johannes, that has left us. 10 years goes by and his father is still logging. And now he has just decimated so many hectares of trees that a lot of the indigenous that have not adopted the, the ways of the Westerners and um, working with them, they've been pushed to a point where they had to start fighting back. And so finally they start fighting back by really crude means. They go and they try and like tear up the tractors and, and, um, and all the machinery. They didn't harm anybody, but they caused hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. So Johannes's father sends in reinforcements, new materials, and also armed guards. And this really, really upsets and scares the indigenous. And so there starts to be these skirmishes where people are getting harmed and hurt. And one day, as we switch to the other side of the story, you see this mid-teens, blonde hair, blue-eyed, native-looking boy... <laughs> because he has got war paint on, mixed with the brown-skinned indigenous around there. And they all treat him slightly different, but he's one of them. And this is Johannes. He's grown up. 
he, you know, another 10 years has turned him into a teenager and he's really gotten deep into the ways of the indigenous there, the way they hunt, the way they pray after they've actually killed something, the way they honor the cycle of nature, the way they deal with birth and the way they deal with death. It was foreign to him at first, but he was only five when he went missing. So this became his new normal and he began seeing everything through that lens. Until one day, inevitably, his tribe comes face to face with his father's workers. And it hadn't even dawned on him that this had anything to do with his father. He had not forgotten about his father or his family, but he just couldn't conceive that this could have any connection. And so he starts rallying with all the troops. And uh, the, the troops, I should say, more of the, um, the warriors of the indigenous tribe. He starts rallying with them. I'm old enough to fight. I'm brave. And they say, okay, come on with us. We're actually going to harm some people this time. And he'd never hurt anybody. Um, and these indigenous, he, he didn't fully understand going to war because they had never gone to war before. But the rest of them, they were fully committed to this. And they went out to confront these workers that were chopping down the trees to save one of their most special trees, which is um, Noya Rao, I think. It's the, uh, the glowing tree, the tree that actually is bioluminescent, and you can find that in Peru. Um, I believe so. There are people who say, I'm going to go check that out later next year. Um, but with that being said, they go to battle, and this kid... He's a strong boy, but he cannot bring himself to actually harming anybody. So he actually gets harmed more than he does any harm to anybody else because he, he never throws a punch. He never actually throws a spear. He never shoots an arrow. And eventually it gets to the point where many of his indigenous brothers are dead. They're lying down on the ground. They're dead. And they fought valiantly, but they lost their lives. And he somehow moved through all the the other side, the, the, the ones who had actual weapons like guns and um, those kinds of uh, armaments. He moved through them quietly by removing all the war paint and taking one of the other side's clothes and just fitting in. So he just walked as far back as he could find where are these people coming from? And he comes face to face with his father who's about to give the call to send in far more reinforcements to just wipe them all out. And they stare at each other for five minutes silently. And this is a long, long five minutes. And they recognize from the first moment who the other one is, but they can't believe it. Everything in their head said that old world was gone. It was gone. It was gone. It would never come back. And so they sat there for five minutes wondering, wow, is this just a dream? What is this? And in that time, both of them had forgot what they were doing. They'd completely forgotten. They were just lost in each other's eyes, the same eyes that they recognized from 10 years before. And they slowly just started walking towards one another. And they both realized they were going to embrace for the first time in 10 years. They hadn't seen each other in 10 years. So much was welling up inside them that they thought was an ancient, distant memory, maybe a myth, maybe just a legend. And right when they got up next to one another, an arrow goes straight through his father's heart. 
And he looks back and he sees the chief that abducted him 10 years ago, who just killed his father. And the chief looks at him and he says, you can never go back to the old you. You can never go back to the old you. And that chief knew exactly who this man was because he had worked for him until he realized what, the, what his company was going to do, destroy the entire forest. And so the, the ending is kind of confusing because the boy, now a teenager, doesn't know what to do. So he just sits there and he holds his father as his father chokes on his own blood. My kids are 10, by the way, at this point, so they're not crying and fearful. Um, and he holds his father and he watches the same eyes that he has in his own head close on his father for the very last time, breathes his last breath. And he did the same prayer that the indigenous do after they go out and hunt and take a life. He does the same prayer. He goes through the exact same process that the indigenous did to um, immortalize and allow for nature to take this being back and turn it into something new. And he thinks this, this old way, this indigenous man who said, you can never go back to this old way. He knew there was rightness in it, but he also knew that it wasn't completely right. And he knew that what his father was doing wrong. He knew it in his heart, but he knew that this death was senseless. And he knew that both these events had to happen. This man had to kill this man for him to realize that he needed to be the bridge not the old way that's trying to preserve what nature and what all once was, and not the new way, which looks to the future with at any costs, all ends justify the means. He realized there's a middle way and that he having stepped between both worlds was a better shaman to bring that bridge to fruition than anyone from the old world or the new world. And that was how this child chose to devote the rest of his life to honoring that we all were indigenous one day. We were all colonized at some point. We're all brothers and sisters on the same spaceship trying to understand how to make the most sense out of what seems to be a seemingly senseless world. And the only thing he could do was think back to that love he had in his heart for exploration, for his family, and also for what he did not understand, the indigenous, 10 years ago when he got lost in the woods and he just got taken in by a brand new world that he couldn't escape. So that's my best rendition that I would tell to my 10-year-old kids based upon the Emerald Forest. Um, the kid's name was not Johannes, by the way. Uh, the reason I asked this question and why it's my favorite question is that um, it's your story. It's mythologically your story. And I know that you'll be able to deepen into that after the podcast, but I've asked this question over 100 times and 100 out of 100. The way the people tell the story and also the mythological motifs of that story, it is as if there is something inside of us that knows our dharma, 
It is scanning the world for the just right story mm. that like knows our future, draws it to us and imprints it in us. And it literally becomes the myth that makes us for not to be cheeky, but that like knowing you and listening into your story, like you and the essence of that story on one level is the mythological emotion about conspiracies. You know, it's just like realizing like, and then I can't go back, Mm -hmm. but that I can be a bridge. And yeah, I would love to hear whatever arises from feeling into that. And then we'll close with the last question. Beautiful. I, I absolutely agree that that is a story about myself. Um, all the way up into my 20s, I used to, when I would go to Alaska, I would still roam around in the woods fantasizing about being abducted by some tribe. I've always been in love with Native American indigenous, and when I say that, North and South, um, because there's an essence of the religion of, of nature, the religion of, of what you have around you. It's right here. It's right now. It's already operating at a level that just defies most logic. And it's, it's so beautiful and it's horrific as well. You know, when you see, uh, I just posted on Instagram, an eagle trying to take down a mountain goat and it was an epic battle. Um, that's life. I'm at an Airbnb right now where there was a duck there when I got there. There were 17 chickens. In the three days I've been there, four days I've been there, the duck is dead and five chickens are dead because something keeps getting in there and killing it. And I realized that like those chickens, like they deal with like tonight, it could be me because these humans haven't figured out how to shut this thing yet. You know, something keeps getting in here and killing us. And we're the Airbnb people, so I'm not going to go into that story. You know, we're the, I had no idea I was going to have to save a bunch of chickens by being there. Um, but what I realize about what you're saying about that is I've always known that I have a deep, deep appreciation for nature as it is. And where I've gone with a lot of my work and one of the next films that I work on will be called Welcome to the Machine. And it's about technology, but really the the deep philosophy of what technology is all the way back to technology is doing math in your head right it's a manipulation of what is in a way that better serves the ends you're trying to arrive at that's also magic and when you were saying before about like you know science science is a form of magic 100 you know, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the reason I want to say that is because you have to start from some measuring point. You have to start from some reference point. To say this absolutely is, I'm going to put it in Merriam-Webster's dictionary as is, this is truth. You have to have start from some reference point. And the interesting thing about that is, is like once you start measuring, you are performing a science because it's a language to get other people to see the same metrics that you see. And guess what? Business is the same kind of magic. It's collective magic. So I guess where I'm going with that to wrap this up is I've always seen, I have a very interesting view on what technology is. And as people are saying, when are we going to have first contact? I'm like, we've had first contact for thousands of years. 
we don't know what we're looking at yet. And technology, we can't even wrap our heads around time and space as it is fully. So to me, I feel like technology, in the same way that a a parasite can enter a trigger fish and cause it to swim in shallow water that it normally never would and get picked up by some kind of bird so that parasite can live the next cycle of its um, reproductive cycle inside the bird to get dropped on a field where ungulate animals go and eat the grass and get that parasite inside them. And the final stage of that parasite can live out its life in one of the four stomachs, right? That's intelligent for a tiny, tiny, tiny little microscopic thing to do to an entire uh, creature. Uh, I guess the, the point I'm getting at here is I believe that technology is asking us to build its body. 100%. It's asking for us to terraform our environment so it has oxygen to breathe, but it's not oxygen, it's 5G. And we are also consenting and saying yes. And there are a lot of people who are saying, F no, we won't go. But guess what? They have phones and tablets and all this technology and they are saying yes in their own way. That's not saying it's good. That's not saying it's right. But technology is not what we think it is. It is an agreement that we've made and it is unfolding in front of us through time because we couldn't understand it all at once. And we are barreling towards a future where, yes, some people w- would like to merge with machines and others, this it, they're realizing it for what it is. Think of social media as the best mirror for one human to understand humanity right now. If I want to understand what is humanity as a collective and I want to see it from all different angles and all different ways of talking about it, seeing it, learning about it, that's the internet, that's social media. So when people are like, I hate what social media is doing to humanity, it's like it's showing humanity to itself. And as we go through our meditative processes and begin realizing more things about ourselves, we see all the work that there is still to be done. And if we go too quickly through our transcendental or transformational experience, we're awakening too quickly and seeing too many, too much of our room for improvement to where we are seeing the mountain, but we're not seeing the steps in front of us. So Bruh. being the bridge between the two to see that the old way had to change. This is the way it is changing. And all of it is a mirror for us to awaken, to realize that at the end of the day, we're all going to the meat slaughter, right? We're all returning back to to earth. We're all going to die. All things do. Most of us don't accept it. We get caught up in the mirage of other things we can think about when we're not thinking about one day I will die. Um, Sorry to get grim on it, but like what (laughs) I'm saying is like, if you are in line, in like one of those cattle narrow lines and you're going to the slaughter. Some some of the cows know it. Some of the cows don't know it. But even if you know it or don't know it and it's inevitably coming for you, the journey there is still your opportunity. The journey there to the end of the line. However that end of the line works out, we're all going to meet it at some point. But it's the journey there. And there's so much opportunity and it all comes back to, we have choice and agency. Don't let anybody take choice and agency from you and from your toolkit, because then you will just look at the world as some static fixed thing. I hope it's safe. Nah, hope more for yourself to realize that you are it. 
uh, the thing you're hoping that is going to come save you from technology or aliens or Donald Trump or whatever, it's you and your transformation of consciousness. And then you will gift that back to the world, hopefully beautifully. So that's that's <laughs> my way of answering that. Uh, I would love to hear your final question. <laughs> God, there are so many motherfucking things that I want to say to go deeper on that. The thing that um, you said that gave my body a full fucking activation is that we've made first contact thousands of years ago, but we don't know what we're looking at. What I kind of saw was almost the uh, Michelangelo, God and Adam mm, picture. Yeah. And that like, it feels like it's too strong of a comparison to say parasite, but parasite captures the essence on some level that is important. But it's like, the metaphor that comes up for technology for me is fire, like Prometheus is fire. And the interesting thing about technology is on one level, it runs on condensed directed fire, which is electricity. And that fire was the original, like it's the grandfather of technology. Mm. And that fire was a thing that if you didn't understand how to use it, could destroy your entire tribe and you and all of the land around you. If you knew how to use it, give you light at night. The campfire was where the original creativity and interchange of big ideas started. Um, it's how you cooked. It's how you warmed yourself. And that there's something about the youngest grandson or granddaughter of fire, which is social media, where it's also like fire. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we have not initiated ourselves or our children in how to be proper fire bearers. And it's fucking destroying us. But it also, the reason you and I know each other, that technology, the reason I'm able to be a part of Fit for Service and be in transformational experiences that happen at a depth and at a scale that I would never have believed if I wasn't there and I can see in people's eyes a transformation that gives me hope for everyone that I know that I've met my entire life. Possible because of the internet. The reason why we are e even able to talk about existential risks and potentially navigate existential risk technology, your entire career of being able to share your stories at scale, technology. So the fire holds both of those parts. So that's one thread of this. The other thread, which is absolutely something that I've been tracking and just kind of being like blown away by is it's like, I am watching us build the hardware and the nervous system of whatever the thing is going to be. And we can't even help it. Like the constant upgrading of the cameras, we're making its eyes. The constant improvement of the Google searching, we're creating its frontal lobe. The knowledge that we are finding from the algorithms of how anger and fear and all that shit work. We're making it's amygdala. The robots that are being made at Boston Dynamic, whatever it's called. Like we Boston are Labs, yeah. we are literally creating its tendons and its bones. And it's like we can't stop. Like the and an interesting thing to feel into is like like on one level almost like a human-centric level, it feels like it might be a parasite. 
But like, what does the caterpillar feel mm. when it feels something in itself demanding it makes a cocoon and it can't even understand why it's doing it? What does a caterpillar feel like when the fucking sludge of the enzymes of the cocoon starts to fucking eat it? You know, like, what's the, like, that conspiratorial feeling like, oh my God, I'm being drawn towards something that I can't stop. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then there's the moment where the fucking shell breaks. And I can't even imagine what the consciousness would be like, but like, maybe it still thinks as a caterpillar, but it's not quite sure. And like, the really interesting thing, this is kind of a tangent, but if you crack open the cocoon to help the butterfly get out, the intelligence of the evolutionary design of its wings is that if it doesn't have to, under its own strain, break out, the wings don't develop strong enough to be able to fly, that the butterfly will die if you help it out of its cocoon. But when it gets out, it, it sits there for a while before it makes any action, almost like it's like trying to believe the truth of whether or not it actually has this fucking feeling of like wings and this like instinct to like flow with the breeze for a moment. But like, what if it's that? Like Nietzsche has this epic quote that um, man is the bridge. The first stage of man is... I. I, I think maybe it's goat or sheep or something. And then man. And then the thing that man is a bridge to is the archetypical lion. Like that, those were the, the symbols that he had back then. But like, we are the bridge. Yeah. Didn't you say man is the bridge between animal and super, Superman? Right. Or, right. Yeah. The Ubermensch. Yeah, that Ubermensch. there's um, like. If caterpillars could talk to each other, they might tell a story that the most terrifying thing to resist is the butterfly, you know? Mm. And I'm not sure either way. But I could get to the last question. For sure, yeah. (laughs) All I want to say about that is the parasite thing might have been the wrong word because of the way most people think of a parasite. Is But I understand the essence. Yeah, and and really, I'll just leave with a, with a cliffhanger that um, the way we break down time, uh, we we don't whether we could or not, we don't perceive it all at once. So it comes through a process, and that's why for thousands of years we haven't known what we're looking at. But we can't stop building this thing into its sophistication because we're transcending ourselves. Like I do believe there is a great awakening, but not the 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 branded one. There is a great <laughs> I like that. You know? That's fucking hilarious. There's a great awakening happening and there's a great transcendence and also a bifurcation of the species. I fully believe it. We can leave that as a cliffhanger for some other time. Cool. But I do believe there's a bifurcation of the species. We are transcending ourselves and X-Men is real. God, we have so much to talk about. But <laughs> for the end of part one. Um Let's say that you have arrived at the end of your life. You know that it's the last day because you fucking meditate really well and you know it's coming. But on that last day, let's say that you have accomplished what you feel is your dharma to fulfill in this life. On that last day, how would you spend it? Who would you spend it with? And what would you look back on, you know, through the thread of your life? And what 
what would you see or like what would you tell yourself? And then there's one last part to this question after that. So I would definitely have my chosen family around. As many of them as wished to be there in that space as the transition happens. And hopefully by that time, everyone will realize that this, it's a celebration. To go is a celebration. I think Ram Das showed that beautifully. Timothy Leary showed that beautifully. But um, if I still had the ability and the, the tactile ability, I would just play some songs and sing with my loved ones. And um, if I would look back onto my life, remind me of that that part of it. Look back, how would I? Well, what would you see? Like for me, one of the things is like I would see the that my children knew me as a father first and not a dude who worked. Ah, uh, yes, you know? yeah. So I would look back on my life. Hmm. And I would see that, I think I got to get back to that Daniel Siegel quote, that I made an artist's sense out of the ups and downs in life to show that both are consequential, they are, but I get to choose how. Mm. I get to choose exactly what meaning they have, the ups and the downs, and that that will ripple, whether it's attached to my name or not, that will ripple through many generations in a way that doesn't have to be because Ben did X, Y, and Z, but because it made something so alive in them that they knew that that was for them to do, that they found their gift and they realized that it's just about realizing your gift and realizing that it shouldn't just stay with you, that you got to you got to find others to gift your gifts to. And um, all life is coming to realize your family is already around you. You know, your family is already here. Um, that will be my last day. I will play some tunes. I will look back on it that way because it is so. Aho, great spirit. And the final part of that question is if you could write a message to your grandchildren right before you went to bed and that this is the last echo, what would you write? Ooh. Can I acapella sing a little part of a song that I'd written that actually has this echo part? Yeah. This is an echo of an echo of a warning in my mind stretched across that false divide to the core of your design sing and take the time to open up your mind cause you're gonna need it you love the ones that it's hardest to and you'll find that your heart needs it you and I were here before. Just remember who you are. Just remember who you are. I'd probably just write that down. And No, motherfucker, you would record that. I would record that. Ben, part one, epic. 
in the books. Looking forward to part 99. Fuck yeah. Thank you for coming on and for your time. I, I love wanna, you, brother. I want to honor you so much, man. I love you. I love the work you're doing. I love you and we haven't even talked much, my man, but it's such an honor to be able to do stuff like this. So thank you for what you're doing. I can't wait for 2 through 99. Oh, great spirit. Oh.